Welcome to the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with me today is Shiraz Maher of the War Studies Department at King's College London, director of the International Center for Study of Radicalization, and the author of the recent book, Salafi Jihadism, History of an Idea, which came out a few years ago with Oxford University Press. Uh, Shiraz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about this book. Uh, when you sat down to write it, what were you trying to accomplish? And uh, what do you think the main contributions of the book were? I think, you know, when I approach this subject, uh, I'm a historian by training, and I'm very interested in the history of ideas and how ideas have evolved. And what was very clear was that there was uh, a space within jihadi studies, if, if we call it that, where people hadn't quite looked at the evolution of these ideas and the intellectual trajectory of a movement that if you take it very crudely as sort of starting with Abdullah Azam and the Arab Afghans and their campaign against the Soviet Union, that war was fought in a very materially different way to what we saw happening with Islamic State, which was uh, really at the peak of its powers when I was writing this book. Um, There were no suicide bombings, for example. There was no kidnapping of Westerners or beheading of hostages. Those old school guys essentially saw themselves as an army And you could just draw a line from their debates and discussions that they had had all the way through to what had happened today. So I wanted to chart the intellectual uh, migration of this movement with reference to uh, uh, Islamic theology and to sort of try and bring that into the Western discourse and to show people here is uh, uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever, and here is how they are rationalizing, justifying, explaining what they're doing. I, I regard all these movements as being constructions of Islam. Um, and that, for me, uh, I think is, is you know, an interesting part of the debate to look at how they're building these ideas and ideologies. So you start with um, you know, the, the history of these ideas back in the Afghan Jihad, and you mentioned Abdullah Azam. But it, I thought it was interesting that there were a couple of key historical moments where you saw these really profound developments in the justifications for violence and warfare. And that was Algeria and then Iraq. Um, Can you trace through a little bit how these wars changed the way these groups were thinking about appropriate violence and legitimacy? Sure. I think those two are important events. And, you know, I I think the most important event, as I say to my students at least, is that uh, that people don't talk about Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait uh, in 1990. That was a huge pivotal moment in this uh, uh, moment. I mean, anecdotally as well, I was a child living in Saudi at the time. There had never really been public debate and public discourse uh, about the legitimacy of the royal family until that moment. But suddenly, in the mosques, you began to see people questioning the wisdom uh, of having a military alliance with the United States to allow the United States to come to Saudi Arabia, establish military bases, and so on. Um, so that was. So it starts raising political questions. It raises political questions, and also this nature of. You know, if you can't do this, if it's a bad idea to invite the United States, why is it a bad idea? And that's where these concepts such as al-wala wal-bara and stuff that I talk about in the book start to uh, really assume a life of their own. They roll back into public consciousness and debates start to take place around this. And you have, you know, it's a critical moment in the life of a country like Saudi Arabia because you've had the emergence of the first real band of public intellectuals, the so-called Sahwa Salafis, the awakening Salafis, uh, many of whom are today, again, uh, in, embroiled in controversies with the administration of Mohammed bin Salman. So um, uh, these were uh, uh, sort of an emergent intellectual class 
who were important and they were shaping the debate. And that was you know, important for the exiles. So Bin Laden, of course, is in Sudan. He's watching those debates, adopting those ideas. And there's a process of evolution happening. In Algeria, of course, there is actually a war happening. There was a fight taking place. So it's the first time, again, theorists like Abu Musab al-Suri, who was very important um, in the early sort of development of core jihadist ideas, were again starting this idea of saying, hmm, okay, we don't like what's happening here, we see we're on the back foot, can we rationalize taking the war to France? Can we rationalize either hijacking French planes, or of course there was a, a bombing campaign in, uh, in Paris on the Parisian metro. So you can see how they begin to start to experiment with these ideas and taking something like um, the concept of Kisas, for example, um, and, and could, you, could you explain that? Yeah, so yeah. It, it, I suppose in Western legal terms, it's essentially like uh, a tort law. It relates to personal injury, essentially, and provides a sort of method of uh, um, uh, uh, sort of restitution, I suppose. That if you, uh, you know, lose a limb, you have uh, a recourse, a financial recourse against the person. So it, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of personal injury and private law, and they essentially turn into a tool of international relations. You bombed us, so we bomb you. It's that discourse we've heard from Al-Qaeda for years now. You know, they bomb us, so we bomb them, and it's retaliation, like for like, and all that sort of stuff. But what's interesting is that that's a novel development in the, in the construction of that concept and a novel application. So again, that was the moment you begin to see them saying, hmm, this thing exists here, we can pick it up and put it there. And you can see one of the things I try to illuminate in the book is that even within hardcore Salafi uh, uh, or militant Salafi circles, you can see uh, there is a, a dispute over this. Interesting thing, because like, there's a guy called Abu Basir Tartusi, for example, who argues back against the movement quite a lot, even though he's broadly within it. He says, no, you apply these concepts too broadly, uh, your embrace of certain ideas is too promiscuous, you need to do this and this. So it, it's interesting to see the way these ideas are contested, but also then applied in Algeria, is the moment we begin to see that happen. And then what's interesting there, and this is a theme that runs through the book, is that you know these people are not just engaging in random violence, and the strategy is very much embedded within these, these sophisticated arguments about the legitimation for them. So why is it allowed to slaughter an entire village, but it's not allowed to do this other thing? Exactly. Exactly. I mean... For all of its barbarism, I think one of the things the book shows is, you know, Al-Qaeda, much more so than Islamic State, had a body of law. It had a, a body of scholars within the movement, people like Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi, one of the most important jihadist theorists in the world, really. Um, you know, whatever you think of his writing, he is scholarly in terms of his training. He knows what he's talking about. He can construct law. Uh, same with people Abu Qatada, for example. So these guys are interesting in that respect that they laid down a kind of framework for jihadist action. Um, Islamic State was much less concerned with that, actually. It moved much more into a nihilistic moment. And for example, you know, Al-Qaeda produced a book um, around the concept of Tataros, which is, you know, it translates to human shields, but the way to think about it is civilian casualties, essentially, or collateral damage. And this book is you know, over 100 pages discussing the different sort of theories and uh, consideration of civilians from their perspective in response to the Iraq uh, mm -hmm. uh, war. Islamic State burns a Jordanian pilot alive in a cage 
and publishes about two lines on the matter and says, here's what it is. And I think the reason for that, and th this is an area that I'm looking into more nowadays, and I think I'll be writing a journal article on it quite soon, is that uh, uh, it's really about praxis. Islamic State and the jihadi movement in general establishes authority by a praxis. It moves away from that traditional notion of Islamic scholarship where ijazah, sort of the sort of permission or author, uh, authorization, mm -hmm. uh, where you would study under a learned sheikh and therefore you receive permission from them, authorization from them, and you sort of uh, um, uh, you can trace those chains, and that's how your authority is traditionally established. But they essentially uh, establish authority by, by doing, by and you can think about that if you just visualize in your mind how we conceive of jihadist leaders, uh, Adnani, Zarqawis, uh, even Jolani, for example, they're, they're often in military fatigues, shown with maps, being on the front lines, this idea that they're sort of warrior scholars. Mm -hmm. And you could see that in the slogan of Islamic State itself. The whole slogan was remaining and expanding, i.e. we're here, we're doing things, and therefore they didn't feel the need to engage in the intellectual debate quite as much. Well, in terms of remaining and expanding, uh, one of the interesting things about the book is the way you frame the uh, the eruption of the Islamic State, the declaration of the caliphate, and uh, the legitimation of that. And early in the book, you make several comments along the lines of uh, Baghdadi had the strongest claim to a caliphate of any of the pretenders over the years. And this was, of course, written at a time when the Islamic State was, if not at its peak, was looking quite strong mm. and looking like it would survive. And of course, a lot of has happened since then. Um, so what does that do to the way that people within this movement might be thinking about the legitimacy of a caliphate or the nature of, of, of political strategy then? Yeah, I think, you know, again, with reference to their own literature and the things they're talking about, um, I did publish a, a, a a paper uh, not too long ago, actually looking at this concept. There's this Islamic concept called uh, Al-Qadar Wal-Qadar, essentially it's a predestination, divine decree, which is a sort of core aspect of Islamic belief. It's a doctrinal aspect. And it's been used by jihadists uh, throughout time. So even in the context of the Afghan war um, in the 1980s, uh, Abdul Azam used it, and he linked it to the concept of monotheism in Islam. He said, look, you know, there are all these various uh, obligations upon a Muslim, the obligation to pray, the obligation to fast, the obligation to give charity. So you satisfy each of these things in different ways. He said, but this concept of demonstrating that you believe in divine decree and predestination, so on, how do you demonstrate it? He said, well, look, God has fixed your lifespan. You had no role in when your life began. And essentially, you can't move the moment of your death uh, further or closer. God is fixed when you will die he said now if you really believe that you would come and fight jihad because you would understand that you're as likely to die on the streets of london washington dc paris as you are standing in uh, the middle of raqqa so don't be afraid now that's a very uh, uh interesting construction of that idea but it's also hugely liberating if you believe it um it, it's what turns these guys into ferocious fighters. So they use it a lot on the battlefield for motivation. But it also works now in the moment when the caliphate is being crushed. Because you're saying that, look, your obligation is to simply expend the energy. Results come from God. So God gave us this huge caliphate, and now God is taking it from us. Now, we can't see into the divine mind, so 
God may be punishing us or God may be testing us. But in fact, it doesn't matter because your obligation remains mm -hmm. to remain steadfast, to keep going. So you could see this in Baghuz, for example, at the last stand of the caliphate. These were the most hard, and this was the narrative that they put out, that we will continue to fight because it's victory either way, right? We, we, it's victory either way because we either get martyred or we get a uh, 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 victory in the mm -hmm. temple life. But um, it, it, it's remarkable how you can continue to motivate your troops even when you've lost your territory. So you have like the, the, the troops, as you call them, the people who are there on the ground with the Islamic State and within this apparatus, this state-like apparatus that they built. But I know you also do a fair amount of research on how these ideas travel out into the so-called, you know, the lone wolf, you know, right. the, the radicalization process out there in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit about the transmission of these ideas and how I mean, do people take the ideas seriously or are they just attracted to this perception of a successful insurgent movement? I mean, what is the, what is the importance of these ideas that you dissect so carefully in the book? I think, you know, it's, it's clear that Islamic State is an ideological movement. And we tend to think of actors within ideological movements as being ideologues themselves or, you know, being considered and thoughtful actors, which is not the case. Um, in fact, most people going to Islamic State who joined the group, you know, I interviewed uh, scores of them um, to understand their experiences. You know, I knew their literature better than them and their ideas better than them. Um, and I like to think, you know, that's one of the things that helped me win credibility with them, but actually they were just bored a lot of the time, if I'm honest. <laughs> they were just bored because they'd seen the great videos and they got out there and then they were set to do guard duty and so it wasn't the heroic fight that they thought they were going to have. Um, someone said though, and I, I read this somewhere, it's always frustrating, I, you know, uh, I can't remember where I read it, but this was the best way I uh, could conceive of it and really helped clarify in my mind that you know, the prison guards at Auschwitz hadn't read Mein Kampf, but it didn't matter. They were actors within an ideological movement that had digested this and that was instructing them, ordering their actions in line with the ideological vision of what the Nazis were attempting to achieve. It's the same thing. The foot soldier of Islamic State doesn't have to have read Makdisi or Qatada or any of these guys, but it is... Uh, uh, those ideas that shape their actions and the movement at the top which gives them direction so these guys didn't have a great understanding they know the headline ideas martyrdom is a good thing there are rewards for being a martyr you should come and defend islam and so, so they have those kinds of ideas in their uh, in their minds but um but it's not immediately uh, clear that they understood much beyond that of course you know you can uh, hold misconceptions very sincerely and very strongly. So it's like they didn't need to know what the justification for a particular act of violence is, but they have confidence that the movement has one. Exactly. There's a belief in the, in the uh, sort of goodness, you could say, of the leadership, that they know what they're doing. You know, we're just mm -hmm. lowly foot soldiers, but that's okay. Like that is a khalif. He's going to operate... Uh, the way he does and will will act under that. So when you start thinking then about like the circulation of these ideas online and their transmission across borders, it sounds like the uh, the the videos and the more simple mobilizational stuff might be more dangerous in a way than these texts. It was momentum as well. So you know, the fact was there was success on the ground for Islamic State. It was building territory. It 
destroyed the border between Iraq and Syria. These were, uh, uh, you know, totemic moments if you were a young radical person, because you've already had that background idea, firstly, that the borders are artificial Western constructions that you're put in place by colonialists to divide Muslims. So here are these guys saying, we have smashed Sykes-Picot. Wow, okay. You know, so it seemed like the impossible was happening. And of course, the the shift theater of the way Islamic State presented itself, Baghdadi's uh, speech in the Nuri Mosque in, in Mosul is an incredible piece of theater. The way he ascends the pulpit, he doesn't walk normally, he leads only with the right foot. He's got his hand on his heart, is designed to show this kind of pious leader who's emerging out of nowhere to stand so brazenly. It was a moment of brazen defiance. It was, uh, again, theater that really resonated with people. And those were the moments that people took the headline ideas, caliphate, ummah, loyalty to other Muslims, and ran with them. So if momentum was so important then, what about the opposite now? If, uh, I mean, of course, as you said, like the dead end, last stand of the caliphate in Baghuz is one thing. But in terms of like the broader appeal of the ideas, wh where does it go from here? Is, do people throw out the whole corpus of Salafi jihadism because it failed? Or do they move in a different direction? Are there other ideas which might now replace this idea that the Islamic State was, was advocating? Well, there's, again, there's probably two points to observe. The first is ideas need momentum. The abstraction appeals to uh, a smaller crowd. I mean, look, there are still communists today, but the fact there is, you know, the Soviet Union doesn't exist means there are fewer of them. It's the same thing here. The tipping point, you know, what's the tipping point for a young 20-year-old today uh, looking at what's happening in the Middle East to think, I need to join Islamic State today? You're far more likely to have been buoyed up and zealous about this idea in mm -hmm. uh, uh, two, three years in, in the past. So there does need to be momentum and success and so on. But the broader question, I think if you, if you take a step back and audit actually the post 9-11 years, uh, what's happened, when you think about George Bush speaking in the aftermath of the attacks in New York and uh, Washington DC and, and Pennsylvania, he is talking about Al-Qaeda. There's a singular group, in a sense, that we're looking at. Uh, and the Taliban, to a lesser extent, as their hosts and sponsors. But essentially, we're talking about this one group. If you look at where Salafi jihadism has gone today, you have this highly splintered, fractured movement now. It has become far more nebulous, far more diffuse. We're talking about groups all over the world now, Islamic State, uh, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram. Now, these are all manifestations in slightly different contexts mm -hmm. and responses to local situations as well. But essentially, you do have this movement that continues to uh, generate uh, momentum for itself, success for itself. And that really speaks to you know the, the broader structural political problems within large parts of the Arab and Muslim mm -hmm. world where these kind of millenarian movements can find growth. So, you know, my... my uh, prospects so my outlook is quite pessimistic i think this is a problem that's going to remain for a while so most of the time we've been discussing kind of the politics of this and the context and as a political scientist that's you know quite congenial much of the book is actually this extremely detailed and well done discussion of specific ideas and their historical evolution and their content and so i guess one last question would be you know 
at, if a political scientist is coming at these issues without getting into the depth and richness of the of the of the theological ideas and and all of these you know, speeches and and books and doctrinal arguments, what are they missing? What is it that we can't explain without really understanding the sets of ideas that these Salafi jihadists have developed about themselves? Well, I think all of our disciplinary approaches miss something because the discipline brings you to it in a in a particular way what i as i say wanted to do with the book really was to show that there is canon and law here that, that, that this isn't a whimsical movement it isn't just a bunch of guys running around doing as they please I mean, sometimes yes i think that was the case particularly with islamic state and then they retroactively bolt on a kind of oh and look here's a precedent or an example uh, to to say what they're doing but i suppose let me flip your question. What question can't I answer by, by my approach is, this is a construction of Islam, what Islamic says. Just as much as when the Saudi ulama, for example, or a Sufi uh, order in Morocco or in Pakistan condemns ISIS and argues against it, is another construction of Islam. What the really interesting question is, is what makes a young man from Minnesota, from Birmingham, from Paris or Rome or Berlin decide, that's the construction of something I want to follow. That's a political ideology that I want to embrace. It is essentially a kind of new fascism that these individuals have embraced. And so that for me was always the, you know, the, the, the part, the next part of the book that, that I don't answer, I don't look into. What makes them do that? Um, so we all, I suppose, you know, have a bit of that little bit missing. Maybe that's where the political science can come in and tell us why are they doing it. <laughs> all right. We've been speaking with Shiraz Maher of King's College London about his new, uh, his recent book, Salafi Jihadism, History of an Idea. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs>